Welcome to the Meeple Syrup After Show, Designers Discussing Design. We're on episode 83, Ready Player One. We had a great show. I have so much to say. I know both Tiffany and Sen do as well. Uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, we were talking player count and how that uh, interacts or feeds design and how, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, you know, things like uh, what makes a good game. Uh, work with different player accounts. We talked a lot about scope, and uh, not not the uh, the mouthwash type. Uh, but we, uh, I I don't want to take up any more time. I know it's already. We ran a little late because we had the exciting news of uh, the dojo have uh, four four members in the dojo for season one of the dojo uh, game dojo, where Sen is going to be mentoring a few up and comers. Uh, maybe before we go uh, into this episode, just again, maybe a, a quick plug if anyone uh, didn't catch that. Sen, can you just give a quick oh, uh, yeah, sure. a quick summation of what you're going to hopefully do with the dojo so that maybe so, people get ready for season two? Yeah, so for season one, we have four applicants who are successful in their bid to um, try to get a game somewhere further than what it is doesn't necessarily mean publication, but hopefully, I mean, if that's their goal, that's where we're going to try to get them. Uh, so it's Ryan Shoon, Bob Wyman, Devin Stinchcomb, and Steve Kyrez, who will be um, getting some hopefully helpful advice uh, from me. We'll do some playtesting together. Hopefully, they'll learn how to maybe use Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia so we can do it remotely or send print and plays back and forth, that kind of thing. And then also, um, you know, through contacts, maybe we'll get some surprise guests online every now and then. So the process is going to be play test, reiterate, reiterate, but then also have conversations online. So uh, we'll have viewers watching us live interact, uh, you know, me asking questions of the designers, you know, how'd your play test go, that kind of thing. So it'll be a little bit of reality TV, totally unscripted. Yeah. Um, a, little, a little chance for people to kind of yeah. tag along for the ride. Yeah. So, Almost like I'm Jiminy Cricket, and I'm like the voice on the shoulder saying, Steve, you should have thought of this, right? And then Steve will go, nice. oh, I should have thought of that. Nice. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of the games are in a good state, and we're just aiming to make it a little bit better. And this gives you guys a little bit of um, an insight into the process that the game artisans of Canada go through. So every member who has full artisan status has pretty much in the last you know five, six, seven years gone through this process in some way, shape or form where we take somebody from a journeyman to an artisan and then hopefully to wherever they need to go in terms of publication. So again, the goal is not publication, but it should lead towards something like that. So on that note, let's get back to this after show, which is about player count. Yeah, well, I mean, there's just so much. Let's just pick something and go from there. I mean, let's uh, maybe the, the first topic i want to get into and there's stuff that we didn't even get to on the episode i'd love to talk about but first let's just talk about um the the discussion of scope and chaos i thought those are really important terms and i know tiffany for instance was taking lots of notes let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about um i mean i had the opportunity of listening to uh the podcast that was referenced but for for you two you know what what stuff did gil bring up from that 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 jumped out at you that you think designers need to catch or hear? Is there anything you want to add to it or echo so that our viewers really hear some of the great stuff that, that was discussed? Well, there's one thing that he said 
very early on in the show that that made me get out my notebook and start taking notes. And I even tweeted it because it was a great quote. And that is different player accounts are essentially different games. I think that's mm. huge. Um, and it's one of those things that I definitely have felt before uh, while playing games and reviewing games. But he just the the he phrased it so well, and it just kind of clicked for me that it's true. And then and then we went through on different player accounts and we talked about how different player accounts are essentially different design mm -hmm. elements in games. So that was the huge takeaway for me. It was like mind blown. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, my favorite thing was when uh, we were talking about even just on the box, like don't lie on the box. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you feel like you're kind of lying on the box. So I'll even give an example of my game. Uh, Jay and I designed Belfort, obviously, and that's a game that we love. And we were asked by the publishers very specifically, oh, you know, we can't just say three to five. We want to say two to five. Can you make a two-player variant? And that idea of saying three to five with a two-player variant is much more transparent. Um, and it's much more honest to the buying audience because a lot of people got the game thinking they could play it with two. And the, the rules for two-player are almost exactly the same, but they have the quote-unquote evil bot, right, where you're playing other, where you use other pieces that yep. you're not totally in control of to actually play the game and it turned a lot of people off of the two-player game which is unfortunate because the two-player game in Belfort is actually awesome if you ever get a chance to play yeah. it give it a shot because there's a, there's a whole other level of strategy if you're into area control and you like two-player games this is one where the jockey, the way that Belfort works, because you jockey between control halfway through your turn on placement versus, um, you know, turn order. If you can play it really well, and you can actually switch which of the bots you're taking control of, then yeah. you have a whole new game. And it's yeah, only when you realize that that you go, oh, that's very interesting. Yep, there's a lot of strategy, and I think I think that people had a, a false expectation, like you're mentioning. Sure. But it, if people go in with it is a different game, it is a different experience. There's a lot of strategy to be had for Belfort two player. I really enjoy. It. I mean, most people know Belfort is one of my favorite games, and that was actually how Sen and I met. Was uh, I threw a Belfort party? So, uh, so I am a big fan of that, and I think that gets me into a topic that I'm really interested in, and we didn't talk a lot about it, but this idea of uh, well, let's do it now. Let's do it now. Now, certain certain uh, types of games are better with different player counts. And you mentioned area control, um, and how uh, Gil even mentioned, you know, something like area control usually begs more players for it to be good. You know, you need you need enough different moving pieces. And I'm curious, what other mechanics do you see that are lend themselves better to different player counts? I'd love to talk a little bit about that. And and then maybe breaking that rule, what games do we wish are out there that did it better? You know, for instance, I love area control and I would like to see more games do two player with area control better. It's always easy to say, well, add more people to fight over area and it's more fun, but you know, I would like to see more people take on the challenge of also maybe breaking the rules. So what 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 do you guys see are certain mechanics that lend themselves better? for more or less. Another example that was in our last episode was battle games. So games with fighting and interaction like that, that often lends itself to more players. But what, what do you think, uh, Tiffany or Sen, um, are some mechanics that lend themselves to different player counts? Hmm. Good question, good question. Tiff, you want to hit that? Or you on... I can start it off. Yeah, um, go ahead. 
Well, so the thing that, that Gil mentioned, I mean, I'm just going to be talking about how awesome Gil is this entire after show. Uh, but one of the things that Gil said that really like hooked me was when he started talking about the the scope, and I know this was from another show, the, the local scope versus global scope. And I was thinking about it, and the games, a lot of two-player games that are designed specifically just for two-player, some of Steve and I's favorite titles are ones where it's very local scoped. So in that regard, it's it's what some people refer to as sandbox games. Mm-hmm. And a lot of games which are sandbox games, I feel that they scale better to larger player counts um, more easily, but they also just limit player interaction. So an example would be um, like Agricola. Agricola works just as well two-player as it does other players because they just add more action spaces available um, to every player. And so the global scale grows at the same ratio as as the player count. Yeah. But you're mostly focused on just what you're doing in your own player area. Yeah. Um, and so the more I think about that, the more I realize there are games that I think that's almost become, it's it's like a standard formula almost. I don't want to say formula, but it's like a similar, it's a standard mechanic that I see in a lot of games that do that two-player Two good games that do two player and can scale up. It's games that generally have a more local scope is the main focus of what you're doing. And then the global just scales with the number of players, either based on like how many action spots, like Viticulture, you have a number of action spots that are available depending on player counts. So the global scope just scales. Absolutely. I'll jump in. I mean, one that I think is a a very common one and seems almost like every design I've seen in the last year has kind of gone to this this uh, tool in the tool chest, but simultaneous selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the times, if it's simultaneous selection, then you can you have a good idea of how long the game's going to play because it doesn't matter how many players are going, you're always playing kind of the same amount of total turns or it's slightly adjusted so that you, you have a similar expectation. And Seven Wonders is obviously one of the classic examples of a, a game that can scale fairly high up to seven without, you know, technically running too much longer, even though you have lots more players. So I think I think that's an example that we're seeing a lot of. I mean, I can think of like Boyan was on the show one time and he talked about how basically every game he designs, he tries to think of simultaneous selection in in some aspect of a game. That's kind of one of his trademarks. Or I've talked to other designers where they find that's an easy example or a tool they can use to address things like games running too long or outstaying their welcome, um, especially with higher player counts. Because if you do have a lot of people waiting turns, you know, that downtime can be quite brutal. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I know Daryl has another opinion of downtime than some of us do. Uh, He he actually likes some downtime in order to think, right? And I I think that's, that's warranted. Um, What, uh, what you end up with in a lot of cases where the game design is simultaneous action is you kind of almost get that feel of like there's a rush to do it. And that's unfortunate in games where you need to be a little more thoughtful. Uh, So I I think, you know, the mechanics have to have to meld very well with the amount of information that we're expecting the players to actually 
get to grok you know that that yep. grok word right um sure. and so definitely at higher player counts if the stuff is simple like like literally on a card of seven wonders what is it it's an icon or two and then what path it actually took right yeah. so there's what it produces what it takes to make it and then did you get it for free or not and the color of you know what type yeah. it is that's about it and you can digest psychologically that type of information in yeah. a split second because it's less than you know the seven plus or minus two bits that we often yeah. talk about it in cognitive science which is not well, really and, and you're way, and you're doing it over and over again so it's yeah. help you're already kind of warming yourself up throughout the game yeah because you're looking for that same information you know where to look you you're, you're building that habit yeah um one thing that i i often enjoy um i like take that more than a lot of people do uh mm -hmm. so I, I enjoy fighting games and things like that and a lot of them are basically like they're two-player games so or very often two-player games so even um, you know, like Battlecon or even mm -hmm. Jeff Engelstein's new one, Fog of War, it's a two-player game because adding that third player into the mix makes it into that weird thing where you cannot calculate what's going to happen or could end up being that let's dump on uh, one player to really eliminate it, to make it a two-player game, right? And yep. so, uh, I mean, Jesse and I, when we work on fighting games, because we often do uh, work <laughs> on fighting games where there are more than one or two players. I mean, there's three or four. Um, our solution to that so far has been things like you only target the person to your left, and the game ends when one player eliminates the person to their left, that kind of thing. So it really yeah. is a, it's almost like it's a kludge in some ways or a fix that is, okay, we took this two-player game and just made it into many little two-player games. Yeah. But then we have ways to interact with the other players, um, what they're doing, through the game just not the direct take that part of it so I, I mean i'd like to try to do more i think what daryl what you're saying in terms of um area control i think we could actually solve that if we use the belfort mechanic just in a little more uh upfront way yep. that you are picking allies and mm -hmm. each turn your allies could turn or change depending on what you do and those allies are helping you get the territories but they could turn to they could really literally turn coat right yep. and yep. become the allies of your opponent the next turn so you have to be aware of all of that and i think that could make a really dynamic area control game absolutely absolutely another uh topic that came up which i i'm fascinated by and we didn't get to talk too much about it uh especially us um is the three player only game and i i think i think it's fascinating that uh especially jeremy and david both talked about how you know, if a game's only three to five players or if it's three player only, those are games that are low on their totem pole for what they, what they thought they'd play or even review, which is mm -hmm. hilarious because at other times they mentioned how their favorite player count was three with some of their, their Euro games. So clearly people play three player games yeah. a lot. I mean, it, there, there are games I game will only nights. play with three players. Yeah. So we're already playing games often with three, but there's this stigma almost mm -hmm. attached to this yeah. game that can't play two yet there's games that i own that i bought with the fact that it played two to something but i've never played it as two because i never would anyways so it's funny that there's a stigma there what do you think that's attributed to and do you think that'll change i i honestly don't know because i almost i have a similar stigma um especially because steve and i 
most gaming that we do, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna move my camera up because um, I'm sitting forward now. Most gaming that we do is two player. Um, and if we're not playing two player, we play three player, but we actually are doing a massive, we've instigated a rule in our collection where if the game doesn't support two player, like if it's three to five on the box, it has to be amazing as three to five, because if right. not, we just, we're gonna get rid of it. Because, right. and the same thing goes with purchasing, like we will not purchase a game anymore that says three to five, unless we have played it already. Right. Because it's one of those things where it's like the limitation of, and there are games that we have that can play two player that we've never actually played two player, but we're keeping them around because they can. It's kind of a weird, well, because you still think you still have hope that they're going to be great, but maybe. Well, yeah, and there's still the hope that like there's the there's the chance that if somebody comes over and we really want to play this game, right. we can play it. But if like they're not if they end up not coming over and we still want to play it, we can still play it two player. I mean, so, Sen, Sen has a notorious collection of just everything. Yeah, so, I got so a lot of games. That, that is that is not going <laughs> to be criteria necessarily for Sen, but I know for myself it's funny. Uh, the 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 quote was that there's more duos than trios in the world, but that that might be true if you game a lot with like a significant other. But like for instance, myself, uh, I almost exclusively when I play games with Tanya, it's with more people. Like we like we play games for social, so yeah. most of the time it is three or more. So um, two player is actually not a big deal to me. I rarely play two player only and. Only times I do is when I want to play my two-player only games. I obviously have no other option. I mean, uh, I, I joked I haven't actually done it yet, but Akrotiri is an example of like I love Akrotiri. It's a great two-player only game. I need to buy another copy so that I can play it with more players. Well, but well, before you do that, let me give a plug. <laughs> so um, the new Akrotiri is coming out. Ta da! <laughs> Uh, and the new Akatiri will have um, different colored ships. Yes. Specifically awesome. for that reason. <laughs> and Jay and I are currently, as of like, you know, now I should actually be working on it. Um, the three to four player rules, which are not very different. It's just in terms of setup. Yeah. So um, interesting. how many yeah, tiles and things like that. Yeah. I didn't even know that to set that up. That's, I know, right? That's like, perfect. It's, it's, we were... uh, it's interesting. We streamed it. I don't know if you watched. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. What, well, one of the questions somebody was like, "This seems like you could do three to four. and we were like, "I mean, yeah, but the size of the map would be massive." So now I'm really excited. Well, tell uh, the back Sen, why don't you tell the backstory on that one? Oh, please. it was actually made for two to five. <laughs> when we designed it, that that was a two to five player game, and it still can play with two to five. What happened was Sophie picked it up. Um, played it, loved it, but said, there's no way, and this is in French, uh, there's no way that I'm making this in uh, for more than two players because I can't handle the downtime. And if you played it, and you played it, you guys have all played it, you know that the downtime between turns can, you know, sometimes get a little bit as you're pathing out, especially near the end when you really want to make that seven-point temple. It's, oh, how can I get there? And in a two-player game, it's not so bad, but if everybody was doing that, it could get to be a bit much. Um, and so we realized that she was right. At first, we were, Jay and I were like, oh, no, it has to be, and we're not going to sign this. And then we said, well, you know what? I think she's right. And in the end, she really was, because the game has found a very good 
supportive niche in the two-player community where in a three to four or five-player community it probably would have got lost amongst other games and so now it's like hey there's an opportunity to make a new version of it that has uh, the cards rebalanced because a funny story is we didn't actually rebalance for two players we rebalanced for we kept the balance for five and so there's oh. one or two cards in there like when you play you'll notice that hey why is this worth seven that's yeah. really easy to get you can really yeah yeah get it easily, that's how right? i totally kill steve usually at that game. right because <laughs> and the reason why is because if you have a turn and then steve has a turn and then you have a turn Mm-hmm. You can finish that goal faster than if somebody else, if two other people or one, even one other person messes up your turn, messes up your strategy right in between your plays. So we've nixed that one a little bit. We've adjusted some, some points here and there to better fit the two to four player experience, I feel. So that, that's that game. So yeah, a lot of times player count is super important. Um, yeah. And so the idea, I think um, the idea that uh, Gil brought up in regards to scope, that's from Matt and everybody else in the other guild. Matt Brilliant Wolf. stuff, Matt Wolf. Let's, let's actually like read up on that stuff mm-hmm. and see where it goes uh, from there in terms of does that inform design decisions? And I think it really will when you read it. Uh, at, at front, most of us design from feel anyways. And we kind of, oh yeah, that feels right and that feels right. But now I think this gives us an opportunity to look at it in a much more, um, what we'd call in science, a theoretical lens. So we have a theoretical perspective by which a framework that guides our design process. And I think that's brilliant. So I'm really happy that uh, they, they've come up with that and we can further refine it, right? It's a living thing. Well, I think, I think all designers crave restraints. We either make them for ourselves or we look for uh, direction. And so, uh, an important restraint is thinking through player count. I know, I know for myself, there was a, a time when one publisher was really asking for games that were not party, they were strategy, and yet could be uh, played up to seven players. And oh, so yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. Think, you think about that, that all of a sudden is going to make a lot of important decisions for you if you start thinking through what can be done and what you should, probably shouldn't do when trying to have that many people around the table playing a game and you want it to be done in a time that is satisfying and uh, in a time that, you know, everyone can make important decisions, but, you know, meaningful decisions, but also not be falling asleep when it's someone else's down, you know, someone else's turn. So how are you going to make players engaged, for instance, when it's not their turn, or how are you going to get player interaction to work? Um, Gil used the great example of Take It Easy as something where you can have almost no player interaction. You can do that and have a really great time, but you're restricted to probably 20 minutes. You can't make a game that does, you know, solo play for more than 20 minutes before everyone around the table kind of goes like, oh, wait, why are you here? It comes like bingo, right? Right. Which is, which is fun in some ways because they're actually more interesting than bingo. So a game, another, there's a couple other games like Karuba. Karuba. Uh, uh, Limes, um, which is an one. awesome two-player game that you can play with unlimited amount of players, hmm. right? Those, game, those types of games are brilliant for this format. And so is a game like Pandemic, right? Because mm-hmm. we play Pandemic Survival where we have many tables lined up. We start them the same. We have one deck that we play from. And those types of games can be brilliant because they can 
get people doing the same thing at the same time, but with different results. And all you're really doing is comparing is the different results, which is actually kind of cool. See if you did better than the person next to you or whatever. Um, And so I think there's definitely a place for those types of games. I'd like to see, I'd like to design one myself. I've never even tried or thought about what's a game that we can play where everybody does exactly the same thing, but they don't actually have to be even in the same room. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. They just each have to have a set of the pieces and they can play the game. Yeah. So multiplayer solitaire, but in a good way. I think there's games where, you know, we'd like it to be multiplayer solitaire or we'd like it to, it is multiplayer solitaire, but the game itself feels like it need, needs interaction. Yeah. And then there's games that are so clean and efficient, like the Karuba or Lime's, um, where it's like, no, this game is fine as it is. We don't need to have interaction. and I'm fine playing with it for the 20 to 15 minutes that it takes, right? And if you go, if you ask like Evan Derrick and AJ Porforino from Van Ryder Games, their specialty is actually like solo games. Yeah, well, hostage they, negotiator. Yeah, hostage negotiator and other games. They'll actually say, yeah, make it play in 15 to 20 because ain't nobody want to play a solo game much longer than that. Yeah. Um, at that it- level, right? On the on the solo front, uh, we gotta give a shout out to friends of ours, Low Player Count podcast. Yeah, they, they do a great job of looking at games from that perspective, and so we want to give them a plug. Love what they do. Um, also, I'm gonna shamelessly give a, a a plug for Sagrada, which I think is a game What's that, that has ah, you know, it's a dice game on Kickstarter, and I actually it's a game that was designed where we had to really tackle the question of. Um, multiplayer solitaire, but with interaction being subtle, and yet because we use the use the mechanic of drafting, um, which is one of my favorite mechanics, uh, but we are drafting dice. There is that interaction, but you're still building your own thing. And I think again, it scales really well. And it's my favorite game that I've been part of designing. I co-designed that with Adrian Adamsku, and it's my favorite game with a one-player variant. And the one-player variant. Actually, Adrian came up with, and the minute we sat down and tested it, we were like, oh, wow, now maybe my favorite is playing this one player. But (laughs) we also love it at the two, three, and four player count. We even played around with five, but we cut that because we didn't think it was ideal for downtime. And componentry, right? And and componentry and control. You'd have to play with smaller windows, et cetera. But um, Mm -hmm. the, the reality is that there's certain games that just beg... For they need more interaction or less, and you want to still follow the fun. You know, it's not a complete science. There's art here, but uh, I think there's some tools we can use that we're learning and learning from each other as we develop. Uh, you know, more discussion on how to design well. That's a neat question, actually. Uh, coming off of that one, just when you're designing um, or playing, you know, do you like games that, you know where everybody gets this exact same number of turns or when the ter- when we have the same we have a set of components and that's what we use up you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and we- almost the end triggers or what yeah. are satisfying endings to games absolutely yeah. yeah and if you had a three player game versus a four player game where the three player game was almost one and a half times the length so a game like um uh you know bargain hunter uh Yag. Uh, uh, Uve's game, where a three-player game, you play two rounds, and a four-player game, you only play one round. You know, what's more satisfying, and what do you like? I mean, it's actually a great three-player game. It's not as good as a four-player game, because you have more time to do things. To build up that narrative. Yeah, to build up, well, yeah, of (laughs) collecting crazy-looking toasters and and, uh, hair dryers with eyeballs. 
with Fugilemos. the Fugilemos. Fugilemos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Tiff, what are well, your thoughts? Oh, sorry. I was just—I was just going to mention uh, before we wrap. I just want to men- give a plug for next week's episode. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, just we—we we hadn't mentioned it, but we're going to be talking about good rule books, and we're going to actually turn to a couple of non-designers again to add to our discussion. Uh, but this time, it's going to be Lance Undead Viking Mixer and oh, no. Rod- and Rodney Smith. That guy. Uh, oh, he's Canadian. And, he's all right. and so they'll be joining us again. A couple more reviewers. Uh, well. Trust us, we'll, we'll be getting lots of designers too. Uh, but we'll uh, pick their brains a bit because they have clearly read lots of rule books and I'm sure they have lots of opinions of what makes a good and a poor rule book. And especially, uh, I think it's going to be helpful with Rodney, who, I mean, most of us would agree is one of the experts on teaching a game uh, with his Watch It Played video stream. Uh, so I think that's it. One of the most important hurdles is us thinking through rule books and how to do that well as designers. So we're going to have both Lance and Rodney on the show to talk about that topic. But uh, um, Tiffany, do you want uh, the last word before we uh, wrap up here? Um, well, I have more than one word. That's the well, biggest more, problem. Well, say, say all the words. Say, all, <laughs> the say words. all the words. You get all the words today. Well, I mean, we, we talked a lot, the player count discussion, when we first, I'm going to be really honest, when we first jumped into this episode this morning, I messaged you guys, and I was like, I don't even know. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know what I would ask. How is but, this an episode? <laughs> well, I didn't say that. I don't. I don't. Um, <laughs> but it, it's one of those things that I think that a lot of people mm, underestimate when it comes to, from a consumer perspective, and also a reviewer perspective, Really, I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of work that goes into making varied player counts work. Um, And being able to jump from two player to five player, because one of the things that I see a lot on Kickstarters, and I kind of mentioned this in one of my questions to Gil, is that like the Kickstarter will be announced and be like, oh, this is this is how many players we have. And then like immediately people start asking comments like, are you going to do X number of players? What about adding another player? What about removing players? Like, yeah. And it's one of those things where I feel like people just really don't get how much work goes into designing for other player accounts. And I also oh, feel that... They don't. It's, it's like you said, it's like making a whole other game. Yeah. And I feel like as we have a lot of designers that are new and they're, they are just people that were really enjoying the hobby and as consumers or reviewers and they're branching into design and they come in with that mindset of, oh, well, we'll just make it more players. But a lot goes into balancing mm-hmm. and playing, like just the cards that you mentioned for Akateria about how there's cards that are essentially unbalanced for two player, which is true. Um, mm-hmm. It just really blows me away, and I wish that more people were aware. Like, I want to make like a ad campaign talking about <laughs> player counts at this point. That's player what this episode is. Players yeah, you're not hurting me. Good job, good job, <laughs> Gil. Yeah, Jeremy, good job, you guys. You need an advocate out of out of Tiff. Yeah, um, and it's nice. true because a lot of the Kickstarter stuff that comes through, eventually you get it, and it's like, well, did they really play it, play test it at this player count? And yeah. I mean, Kickstarter people have a lot of stress. They, they there's a lot of constraints in terms of, you know, backers want this. If we don't do this, they won't back. But if we make it, it'll take us longer. But if we don't get it out on time, then they're never going to support us again. So we'll get this out in time. And really, is it as good as it could be? And I think that's what's that what that ultimately is what fails. 
is that there's less playtesting because, as you said, as a novice game designer or a novice publisher, a lot of them are first timers. Um, even if they're super successful, they're, they're strictly first timers, second timers, um, where it fails because they didn't do enough playtesting at the different player counts. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it, and it's one of those things that as, as a reviewer, I often play games and I'm just like, did they even, did they even test this? And I used to, I used to give a lot of crap for people that or for designs that just didn't do well for two player. And I feel that, um, one, they might deserve it. And two, maybe they don't. <laughs> like, it's that tension, right? So just like at the end, Gil's advice was, you know, try to spread out your player count as much as you can because you're seeing, you know, on a consumer standpoint, people want that. But at the same time, don't lie about your player count. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, oh, that's huge. You need, you need yeah. to do a good job of adapting the game and adapting the rules. And yet there's all these tensions, right? Because the minute you adapt your rules for different player counts, people are going to complain, which we'll talk about yeah. in rule books, about, you know, all these different rules for different player counts. Some games are only certain player counts. So yeah. um, maybe also we need to be open-minded to maybe this, this is only a three-player game, and when I have three players, I turn to that as one of my options. Yeah. Or, one of my favorite suggestions, I think, was somebody said on BGG we should actually have a sweet spot right. number. Well, yeah. there is plays best with. Plays yeah, best yeah. With. right. Yeah. But that yeah, wasn't yeah. originally there, you know. That like, there's, oh, okay. it was a long. I don't think it was originally there. I think for a long time, that was just not there. And I think it's yeah. very important. Well, yeah. actually, no, 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 not on BGG. Sorry, on your game box itself. Uh, oh yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I mean, that's be one of the nice. things that people ask me quite frequently. Sure. When it comes to games, they're like, "What does it play best as?" So yeah, I feel like that's worth it. And um, it eventually, it eventually gets out there. But the problem is people having a negative first time experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the classic example that we talked about briefly on the show was Grand Austria Hotel. Oh I yeah. Played that, I played that the first time right at Sasquatch, and I played it right after SN, and I was really psyched about it. I played a four player game. Within one turn, I instantly knew. This is a problem. And so I turned, and there was a game being played to my left that was just starting, and I said, can I join? I'll play both at the same time, and I did. And I played both games, and I never annoyed people on my left because I had enough downtime that I was fully engaged with the other game at the same time. Yeah. That's, that's kind of crazy. It, so yeah. I was like, oh, man, this is horrible. This Grand Austria Hotel, you know, I loved what was going on in the game, but the downtime was horrible. I played it. I ended up picking up a copy, playing it two player, and right after I played that two player experience, I loved it. And three player, I still really enjoy it. So uh, that's a classic example of a game of if my only experience was the four, I may have just hated it, wrote it off, and never went back to mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's the same with my experience with Panamax. I just, I my brain because you Grand Austria is. If you're not familiar, it's a um, action selection game where you roll dice and you put the dice on the grid and those determine what actions you can take. Uh, and you're picking two actions, but it uses a snake pattern. Um, so there's a good amount of downtime at four player because of the, the snake, snake. Yeah. and the dice. So I was thinking, well, what else is another dice drafting game? And I went to Panamax. And when Steve and I first played Panamax, we played four player, I believe. And we loved it because there's so much interaction with your ships in the canals and pushing and stuff. And so we had a copy. So we went home and we played two player and it just like for us, it just completely. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and it was because you lose that player interaction 
mm-hmm. with, the, with the pushing of the canals, even though the downtime was significantly less. So right. important. That's chaos. an, inter- that's an inter- interesting point as well, right? Because a lot of people think about downtime as being the only bad thing, whereas no lack of interaction is also a bad thing, right? And you can yeah. trade that off amongst the two, or there's probably even more factors as well, right? But yeah, downtime well, itself is not the bad thing. Especially if the downtime, it really depends on the game because there's certain mm-hmm. games that I've played where there are huge downtime, but you need that because yeah. you're yeah, like, thinking about says, right? so much. Yeah, and Grand Austria is a is a game where you don't need that much downtime because honestly, by the time if you're in a four player game, by the time your turn comes back to you, the board has completely changed. Yeah, the game right. state is really important. If it's chaotic in a non fun way in that downtime, yeah, you you right. feel totally because why bother paying attention? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Disengagement. Daryl played another game basically. To use to use Gil's term that he was using a lot, um, if yeah, if the global scope of the game is so large and the players can cause so many changes on their turns, um, it adds a disinterest factor for other players because on their turn, the board will be completely different anyway, so why pay attention to the global scope? Right, and in a four-player game, if you're disinterested for three quarters of it, that's not a good sign. That's you're interested on your turn, which so is why in a two-player game, you can have that because 50% of the time you're actually interested. But yeah. if you can make a two-player game where you're actually interested in what the other person's doing as well, then you got your winner, right? That's a good sign of a game. Yep. So on that note, well, on that note, that sounds great. We got to wrap it up. Uh, clearly, we hit a, a, a good nerve, a good topic, had some great guests, uh, and we're really thankful for them. Uh, thank you, uh, both Sen and Tiff, uh, joining me uh, as we uh, take on this journey, this new season of Meeple Syrup Show. We want to say thanks to everyone who's watching. Keep interacting with us and sharing uh, uh, sharing with us your thoughts. Join us when the shows are live uh, and give us, uh, you know, your questions. Or you can hit us up beforehand if if you like. If you have a question in mind on rules, send us uh, this week, and we can use that uh, as we chat with both Lance and Rodney. Yeah. So then keep making great games, and we look forward to ch- uh, playing your game soon. See ya. Bye.